side. Put this side. Great. Well, it's good to be here with you this morning, and uh, thank you for your welcome. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 21, so uh, if you can find it in the Church Bible, that's uh, page 989, uh, Matthew chapter 21. You've been going through Matthew, although you've, I think you've not done anything for a few weeks, have you? The last time you'd have done this, if the tape is right, is the, the morning after the royal wedding. And Megan's an old married woman now. She's been uh, trooping the colour yesterday and all sorts of stuff. So that's a while back. So we take up the story again in Matthew chapter 21. The last bit of it was about the fig tree withering and Jesus casting the money changers out of the temple. That caused a bit of a stir, as you can imagine. So in verse 23 of Matthew 21, here's Jesus coming into the temple again. Jesus entered the temple courts, it says. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, "Ah, If we say from heaven, he'll ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say it from men, ooh, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, uh, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later... He changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, well, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. That's the passage we're going to to be looking at in in a moment or two. If we can just get the uh, PowerPoint up now. I have to tell you while this is happening that uh, I have caused some problems this morning. I came armed with two computers, two memory sticks, two copies of the presentation, lots and lots of leads and cables, two mains adapters... And left behind the one bit I need to make a connection into your system. So we tried all sorts of ways, didn't work, and so as a result we're, we're doing something. Is it... Uh, uh, oh, Chloe to the rescue. Fantastic. The number of technical experts you've got around here is pretty amazing. Um, look at that. We're on our way. There it is, as if by magic. That woman knows what she's doing. That's great. Excellent. Okay, so that's the passage we've read, and it's about the two sons uh, uh, and the story that Jesus tells about them. Let's just see if this thing works now. Yes, it does. Yesterday, 9th of June, was quite an important day in the world's history. All kinds of things happened on the 9th of June. I looked for the 10th of June. It's not nearly so interesting. There have been a few odd disasters and wars and things like that, but the 9th was really interesting. 1856, for instance, 
500 people set out from Iowa City to go to Salt Lake City. They were some of the earliest Mormons, and it was on the 9th of June that they set out. What had happened was the Mormons had become more and more unpopular on the eastern side of America, and they decided to go on a long trek across to the Promised Land, the Zion from which God was going to take them to heaven within 20 years. He never has done yet, by the way, but uh, that was the idea. And so they traveled across the face of America, 143 of them, uh, two of them women, three of them children, the rest all men, and they traveled all the way across America until finally, to their great relief, Brigham Young, their leader, said, hm, this is it. And so they stopped in what is now Utah and started to build Salt Lake City. Well, on the 9th of June, 1856, other people were ready to follow them. And a majority of the 600, actually, were British. There were British converts who'd been told that if you're going to be a Mormon, you've got to go to America, and you've got to go across to uh, Utah. Now, that was not too easy, because Utah was a long way away. There's Iowa City in the east, and there's Salt Lake City in the west. And you can see what size of a journey it is to get there. In fact, uh, Google reckons it will take you 17 hours and 20 minutes by car, and they didn't have cars. That's uh, 1,179 miles. How were they going to get there? Most of them had no uh, travel arrangements whatsoever. There were no trains, there were no aeroplanes. And so they simply had to push handcarts. And in Salt Lake City today, you'll find a, a, a monument to the people who pushed a handcart with their possessions on it, 1,179 miles to get to the Promised Land. All because one guy said, this is the place, we'll bring them all here. It raises big questions about who says, doesn't it? What was his authority? Who gives Brigham Young the right to put people through the, the, the kind of horrible uh, circumstances that these people had to go through. Many of them died on the way. They perished in snowdrifts. They were attacked by Indians. People jeered at them, pushing their handcarts along the road. They, uh, there were plagues that ran rife uh, through, through the pilgrims. And not surprisingly, Mormons today uh, remember the heroism of those people who, because they believed in the authority of their leader, went and did what they did. But also, on June the 9th, if you go a bit further back in history, in 1772, there was the sinking of the Gaspee. This is on the eastern seaboard of America. And this is a, a time when Britain is trying to run America as a kind of milk cow and get as much money out of the colonies as it possibly can. And uh, Britain has passed the Navigation Acts, which basically say that the colonies cannot trade with anybody but England. And they will be charged the top prices uh, if they do send their stuff to England. Well, the Americans didn't like this, obviously, and so they were trying to trade with other people behind the British government's back. And the British government sent all sorts of ships around to try to keep them in line. And the Gaspee was one which would stop uh, American merchantmen and uh, uh, go through their entire cargo. Some of, sometimes, often, they'd been properly stamped and sealed and they had all the documents before they left port, but now they had to stop and be searched yet again. And if they found any contraband, then they were in, 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 in real serious trouble and uh, so the Gatsby was hated by American seamen and one day it was cruising around looking for somebody to annoy and it saw an American ship ahead of it and it uh, tried to gain on the American ship, the American ship went a very strange course, the British ship followed it and realised too late that what they'd done was take the Gatsby onto a sandbar, there was a great grating noise and then it was stuck and it wouldn't be able to move until low tide, uh, to high tide rather, the next day. So that night, 
a bunch of Americans dressed up as Indians, got into boats with muffled oars, sailed out to the Gaspi, uh, imprisoned the crew and burned the whole thing down. And it burned right down to the waterline and then, uh, of course, it hit the powder magazine and the whole thing exploded. And uh, some American historians trace that incident back to the start of the American struggle for independence. This is where it all started. The Declaration of Independence followed soon after that. The Tea Party was an imitation of the Gatsby. This is where it began. People standing up and saying, who says? Who gives them the authority to impose that on our lives? Back further still, AD 68, I'm going to have to stop telling stories in a minute. This is the last one, I promise. Emperor Nero, who's ruled Rome uh, for years with a reign of terror. Somebody who's assassinated not just his enemies, including his old mum, but also uh, his friends, because he now wants to get everybody out of the way who will possibly stand in the way of his total and absolute power. And there's a revolt against him. And on this day, June the 9th, in uh, 68 AD, Nero is cornered by his enemies, commands his freedman, a slave uh, who was his right-hand man, to kill him, and the slave uh, helps to him, him to die before the, the, the opposing soldiers capture him. If they had captured him, it was going to be death by flogging, so you can see why it might be nicer to have a quick death. And uh, then, of course, the slave was put to death for killing the emperor. But there you go. You can, it was no fun being a slave in those days. And uh, so, again, you've got an uprising where people are saying, who's got the right? Who gives him the authority to go around Rome terrifying people and uh, terrorising the, the populace and killing off uh, some of the most distinguished citizens? Who says this man's in charge? And that, I guess, is the question that lies at the heart of our passage this morning. Finally, we get there. Who gives Jesus the right? And so Jesus is coming back into the temple after causing a tremendous rumpus the day before. You remember the story that David Cole talked about uh, when you you last looked at this passage, the cleansing of the temple, sweeping out the merchandise. Jesus, very, very annoyed because it says in the Old Testament that this is going to be a house of prayer for all nations. Now what are you doing? This is the court of the Gentiles in the temple. This is the only place the Gentiles can come to pray. This is the furthest in that non-Jews can get. And instead of leaving them quiet and peace to pray, what have you done? You've turned it into a supermarket. And Jesus causes great upset. And no wonder that when he comes to the temple again, people are looking at him kind of nervously and wondering what he's going to do this time. And he's confronted at the doorstep by three groups of people. First of all, the chief priests. Second, the scribes, the, uh, the, the experts in the law. And third, the elders of the people. So it's about as, 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 as um, imposing a bunch of leaders as you can possibly put together. And they stop him on the doorstep and say, as, we, as we've read, Uh, already by what authority are you doing these things who gave you this authority we didn't so are you the disciple of a distinguished rabbi shammai maybe hillel one of those we know you're not you're just a galilean carpenter where did you get your authority from you're speaking as if you're somebody special are you claiming something blasphemous are you claiming to be bigger than a human being And all those questions are in the background. And Jesus manages to get the best out of them and then tells them a little story. A story about a man who had two sons. A son who said yes and a son who said no. And so that's what we're looking at in this story. And the the story must have made his opponents really, really annoyed. It really cut them down to size. But there was nothing they could say for the moment. 
So let's look at the story. It was a story about a man who had two sons, and he asked the two of them to go and work in. Oops, this is going crazy. Go and work in his vineyard, and uh, that's a perfectly fair request. In those days, the father, the father, is the economic head of the household. If you're a son in that family, you work for the family concern, and your dad tells you what you're going to do. And so, for the, the one of the sons to say, "No, I'm not going to do it," was pretty horrible. And Jews would have thought that was absolutely disgraceful that a son would answer back to his father like that. The other one was much more the proper son, much more the kind of person he would have approved of. I will go, sir, he says. <laughs> and the word he uses is the word kurios, which is a, a, a very polite term. It's the same word as, as you use for Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It means somebody who's got some authority. Yes, father, whatever you say, I will go and do it because I am a good boy. And so you've got the bad son. He says, no, not a chance. And you've got the good son who says, yep, yep, I'm just going. Just give me time to get my shoes on. I'll be out there any time now. The only problem is, this is where the story takes a twist. Because the boy who says no <laughs> changes his mind and goes and works through the day in the vineyard. The boy who says yes, well, he never turns up. So Jesus says, who did the right thing? And they have to give him an answer. Now, there are three things in this story, and this is what I want to just focus on in the time we've got. First of all, the authorities who come to Jesus with this whose authority question to start with. Then in the story, there's a son who said yes, and there's a son who said no. Come on, come on. You, oh, dear me. There we are. You're going to have seen this about a dozen times before we're finished. The son who said yes, the son who said no. So let's have a look at those three to, 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 just uh, to, to, to start with, shall we? First of all, the authorities. Why couldn't they deal with Jesus? Jesus just says, okay, I'll answer your question. No problem. I'll tell you. But first, I've got a question for you. And they make such a ham-fisted job of not answering that question that Jesus is able to say, well, I don't have to keep the deal then, do I? I don't have to tell you the answer. If you could answer the first one, you'd know the answer to the second, but you haven't. So why couldn't the authorities deal with Jesus? I think it's because they were concerned about three things. And whenever somebody can't deal with Jesus, it tends to be these three things they're concerned about. First of all, they were concerned about Jesus himself. Because they wanted to do something with Jesus. They wanted to pigeonhole him, to put him in a box, to say that's where he belongs. He has enough authority to do that, but not this. This is what he, where he is, and this is who he is, and therefore we'll let him do this, but we won't let him do that. They wanted to run his life for him. They wanted to write him off. As somebody who was overstepping the bounds, who didn't have the authority to do what he's doing. And there are lots of people today who'd like to put Jesus in a box and say, he was this, he was that, he was a prophet, he was a good man. And confine him to the, 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 the size that makes him safe. That's what they wanted to do with him, to see if they could neutralize Jesus and make him safe. They'd failed with John the Baptist, nobody could ever tie him down. Maybe they'd have better luck with this guy. But there's another thing as well. They were concerned about themselves. And this is where Jesus saw their weak point and where he was able to ask them a question they just could not answer. Because what they wanted to do was ignore any possible challenge to themselves. Cast your mind back just a few years before when John the Baptist had suddenly appeared out of the desert with his strange new diet of locusts and wild honey, <laughs> looking, looking pretty wild and weird, but preaching a message that cut right to the heart of where lots of people were. Repent. Get baptized. Say you're sorry, because this is not the way we should live. You've known that for years. You've read the Old Testament. You know how we ought to be and how we are. It's never going to happen unless we repent. 
And lots of people had started repenting. Thieves, prostitutes, tax gatherers, even soldiers had got themselves baptized by John the Baptist. Who hadn't? Well, the religious leaders. They hadn't stood out against him either because he'd been very popular. (laughs) And because of the popularity of his movement, they had not dared to oppose him. But they just kind of stayed in the background in a neutral position because they, well, he had some good things to say. But on the other hand, he was an extremist and he went over the bounds. Well, we don't want to be associated with this guy in case he ends up dead, which he did. And so then they breathed a sigh of relief and said, ah, somebody's chopped his head off. Well, we don't need to think about him again then, do we? (laughs) And then Jesus turns up on the doorstep of the temple saying, think about John the Baptist. No wonder they didn't have an answer. Because he'd been trying to to blunt the message of John the Baptist ever since he'd first heard it. To stand away from it. And they, 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 they are caught now because if they say, Oh, John was a prophet, as they know everybody listening around the temple wants to hear, Jesus is going to come straight in with the obvious one. Why didn't you follow him? Why weren't you baptized? Why didn't you do what he said? And on the other hand, they say, No, 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 he wasn't a prophet. We, we didn't agree with John the Baptist then their own position's going to be in trouble. And so they were worried about Jesus. They were worried about themselves, and they wanted to ignore anything that applied to them too directly. And they were worried about other people as well. They wanted to stay in charge at all costs. That's why they couldn't say, Oh, John wasn't a prophet. We don't agree with John. He was just a a rabble-rouser, a troublemaker. Because they knew very well that the people had heard John and what he had to say, and it had made perfect sense to them. And they knew that John was talking, was appealing for the whole country to get back to a standard that they knew in their hearts to be true. And these religious leaders were shilly-shallying about and, and not doing anything about it. And they would lose their authority if they answered the question. I think often uh, we can't handle Jesus <laughs> because we try to put him in a box. We try to dismiss him as something less than he is. Often it's because we're worried about ourselves. We don't want him to challenge us. And one of the problems about Jesus is that whenever you look at him and the way he did things and the things he said, it cuts right to the heart of who you are. And it poses a challenge. So you can't afford to get too close to that kind of message. And another reason, I think, is that sometimes we get concerned about other people. We want to be in charge of our lives. We don't want somebody else to be in charge of us. And we want to look good to other people. And so we don't get as close to Jesus as we might. And then Jesus starts telling them a story. Because these people claim to be leaders of the Jewish nation. They claim to be the people who are inspiring and and, and taking the nation forward. Helping them to worship the God who's supposed to be their king. And in fact, they're not doing that. And so he tells a story about the two boys and the father and the vineyard. Let's look at the two boys just um, as we try to make sense of this. First of all, the son who said yes. Yes, I will, sir. I'll be in the vineyard straight away, Dad. Just let me get my shoes on. What was going on with him? Why didn't he actually turn up? What was the matter? Well, I don't know, but uh, you can, you can theorise, can't you? It might be something to do with one of the three areas of his personality. People say that your personality is in three bits. There's your mind that you think with, your emotions that you feel with, and your will that you make decisions with. And I think he might have had a problem in all three of those areas. For a start, there might have been a mind problem. Maybe he did mean to go, 
He really meant to. He wanted to serve his father, but he didn't want that much. And so when other things came along, there were other priorities, other things he had to do with his day, his mind got distracted. And he never got quite round to doing the things he intended to do. That can happen to us in following Jesus, can't it? You get distracted. There are so many things that you you need to do. The things you think you will do in service, in getting to know him better, in spending time in prayer, in getting to grips with scripture, in helping other people. You just never get round to some of those things because there are so many other good priorities that need to be done. I mean, I'm not sure what was going on here, but uh, probably the lad who said, I'm going, sir wasn't then going to spend the rest of the day sitting around watching TV. Well, TV hadn't been invented, so I guess he wasn't. But uh, I, I think he wasn't just going to waste his time. And probably from the attitude he's got to his father, there are lots of little jobs around the place that need doing, and he was going to do some of those first, and then he'll get out into the vineyard. And the small things get so big that he never actually got onto the job he'd promised to do. We've got to be careful when we make promises to God, haven't we? Because it's so easy to make promises you never get round to keeping. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 talks about that. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Be careful. You're speaking to somebody who is incredibly important. So don't make vague promises. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. God has no pleasure in fools, so fulfill your vow. It's better not to promise than to make a promise and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And it's so easy to do that, isn't it? I am going. Lord, I will do this. I want to do that. And just never get round to it. But maybe it wasn't his mind. Maybe there was a problem with emotions as well. Maybe his emotions just cooled. He lost his enthusiasm. Yes, Dad, I'm going out there. Grapes, grapes. Oh, I can't wait to get out there and start cutting down grapes. Yes, I'm going to do what I can for this vine. It's going to be the most wonderful day's work. Just watch. This is going to be great. And then the sun gets up and it's hot and he thinks, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll just have a cool drink and then I'll go out. And the enthusiasm just dissipates and goes away. And that's something else that can happen in following Jesus, isn't it? It's easy to be on fire for the Lord when you're 18, 20, 25. (laughs) But the cares and worries of life start coming in. Your energy starts to disappear. (laughs) You've got other things that you've got to be getting on with. You've taken on carelessly strange commitments like a wife and kids and all sorts of other things. And it just gets more difficult to keep the enthusiasm going, doesn't it? And it's possible for your emotions to cool. And somebody who just burned to serve Jesus and change the world as a teenager becomes just the same as any other middle-aged Christian. So maybe there was an emotional problem. Or maybe, too, it was a will problem. Maybe his will was weakened because he overheard what the master was say, what the, the, the father was saying to his brother. Incidentally, notice that the father speaks to each of his children individually. He doesn't just get them together and say, boys, I want you in the vineyard today. He talks to them one-to-one. That's the way God does it, isn't he? He calls you to one thing, me to another, and he speaks to us individually. But maybe he'd overheard what was being said to his brother and thought, what a way to talk to dad. That is ridiculous. If he's able to get off with that, why should I be the fall guy? Why should I be stupid? I don't mind going and working out there in the hot sun as long as he's out there with me. 
But he's not going to be, is he? He's just saying, no, he won't. Meh, stop that, Dad. Meh, bye-bye. He's gone off down the town. I, I, we can't let that happen. And so perhaps his will was weakened because he saw the example of somebody else and thought, why should I be any better? It's one of the big problems for Christians, isn't it? That we tend to compare ourselves with everybody else around us. Well, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than so-and-so. I'm doing the same as everybody else at Great Park, so that must be the right thing to do. We don't compare ourselves to other Christians. We compare ourselves to Jesus. That's the way it ought to be, anyhow. And yet we tend not to do that. We tend to look at other people as if it was some kind of competition. I may not be as spiritual as Billy Graham, but I'm as spiritual as her. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a crazy, crazy game, isn't it? Because God calls us individually to follow Jesus in a unique way. He's made us unique. He's given us different gifts. And he wants us to, to follow just the best way we can with Jesus as our model, not as anybody else. And it's possible to look at other people and think, well, you know, <laughs> they're having a nice, easy time. They're spending lots more money than I am. They have a bigger house than I do. Oh, it's possible to be a Christian and do that, is it? Maybe I should be doing the same. And we start copying one another's lifestyle. It's amazing the influence we do have on one another. You just need to go and preach in a few different churches to see that. I mean, even churches of the same denominational background and history, if you go to different churches, you'll find they have a different atmosphere, a different dynamic. Why is that? It's because the people who go there affect one another. And so there is a definite Great Parks culture, which is different from a Belmont culture, which is different from a King Street Tiverton culture, and so on and so on and so on, because we affect one another more than we think. And it's possible, if we're not careful, for that to start affecting our discipleship. Now, just don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a Great Parks culture. I think it's a wonderful culture, it's a great place to come to. But, you know, we do affect one another, and you can see that even in the small, trivial things in the way we relate to one another. So in the big issues of our discipleship, that can be important. It can be a factor in either taking us forward or holding us back. Okay. We've just been thinking about that a little bit this week, I suppose, because we've seen some people who look great on the outside reach a shuddering halt. These two people, Katie Spade, the fashion designer, and Anthony Bourdain, the celebrity chef and uh, food writer, have both committed suicide within the last week. And in both cases, people have registered shock and said, we had no idea they felt like that. They are the last people we'd have expected to do that. And one newspaper article says this about Bourdain. His death coming just days after the suicide of the beloved designer Kate Spade is at least as noteworthy for another reason. How powerfully it speaks to the discrepancy between what we see of people on the outside and what they're experiencing on the inside. Between their public faces and their private realities. Between their visible swagger and invisible pain. Parts unknown. That was true of Bourdain. That was true of Spade. That's true of every one of us. Bourdain's and Spade's deaths happened in a week when newly released government statistics revealed a staggering increase in in suicides by Americans of more than 25% in the last uh, 17 years when nearly 45,000 Americans took their own lives. Experts worry that this trajectory reflects a breakdown in social bonds in community. It's unclear how or if Bourdain and Spade fit into that picture. But they certainly reflect the faultiness of our assumptions, the deceptiveness of appearances, and the conspiracies of the soul. 
what's happening inside us can be chaos. We can present it as something on the outside that looks just like everybody else, and yet inside there's something going on. And as this guy who seems to have a perfect relationship with his father smiles and says, I am going, sir. There's some, don't worry, I just read it to you. <laughs> you didn't hear it, I'll read it to you again. But uh, there's something going on inside us that's different from what you see on the outside. Let's look at the, the well, no, let's uh, talk about this, this girl as another example, a contrary example, if you like. Who knows about Leah Sharibu? Can I see any hands? Nobody knows. Listen, we should all be praying for Leah Sharibu. Do you know why? Back in February, Boko Haram, that Islamic militant group, attacked her town of Dapche in Nigeria. And just as they did four years ago, they took scores and scores of girls away into captivity. Most of them were released the next month. Only one was kept in captivity. They were released because they did a deal with the Nigerian government to send them all home. And when they all came back to Dapchi, Leah Sharibu's mother waited patiently for her daughter to get off the wagon and found that she was the only one who hadn't come back. Why? Because she was a Christian. And at age 14, she was given the choice, convert to Islam and we'll send you back. Stay a Christian and we'll keep you in, in captivity. And she said, I'm a Christian. I can't be a Muslim. Sorry, there's just no way. I follow Jesus Christ. And her parents were quite staggered when they heard about it. Because she's a quiet girl. She used to sing in the church choir. She's got a good voice. But they had no idea the depth of her discipleship, the depth of her commitment to Jesus Christ. And so Leah Sharibu has been in hiding, well, kept in, in, in hiding since the start of March. It was her 15th birthday just a week or so ago. And she celebrated it in captivity just because she's a Christian and she won't give it up. So we need to pray for Leah Sharibu. Her mother obviously is devastated. She has this one picture left of what it was like when Leah was there. And she desperately wants her daughter back. Sometimes following Jesus is tough. Sometimes it's difficult. And it's what you've got inside that's going to decide how you stand. Leah was quiet. She didn't say much to anybody, but inside her there was a burning commitment to Jesus Christ, which cost her her freedom and still is to this day. So do remember Leah Sharibu and pray for her if you can. Then, oh, this is interesting, isn't it? But this is about the son who said no. Either my eyes have gone funny or this has. Not to worry. Um, again, it might be these three areas of the life. Let's just have a look at those three and then we're done. Oh, dear me, it's going to be with us. Not, not to worry. First of all, what happened to him? First of all, maybe his mind was changed. Because to start with, as soon as his father said, Oh, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not going there. No, I'm not going to the vineyard. Not a chance. I'm not going. We don't know why he said it. There's only one verse about him in the whole story. But perhaps it was this, 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 this mental thing. Why should my father tell me how to live my life? It's my life. I can live it the way I want. I want to be free. I want to be independent. And maybe as the day went on, you start thinking, no, I'm not really that free. Everything I have, I get from him. He's the one who's steered the family through to this point. If I didn't have a father like him, I wouldn't have a home to live in. And if I don't help in the vineyard, as my dad gets older, 
then obviously the, the family's not going to have the money. Of course I've got to. I can't be independent because I belong with my dad. Or maybe there was an emotional shift as well. And he started feeling guilty about the way he'd spoken to his father. He started regretting the way that he'd stood out in such a, a, a culturally dis, an unpleasant way against what his father could reasonably have expected. And maybe he started thinking, listen, I can't treat my father like this. And sometimes those two things are important in, in turning us back to where we ought to be as well, aren't they? Your mind changes. You start realizing, no, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. My life is not my own. I'm his. I'm committed. I have to do what he tells me to do because I've made him Lord. And emotionally, we start thinking, I'm a rebel. I'm stupid. And we start realizing how much Jesus loved us and how much the cross matters to us. And we start feeling differently too. And then there's the will. Maybe what happened to him was that his will was conquered. And he started thinking, listen, I have these blow-ups with my father every day of the week. I'm the bad son. I'm the rebel. I'm the one who will never do what he's told. Well, I'm fed up of living that way. Family life is just a battlefield. It's just conflict after conflict, difficulty after difficulty. I'm going to give in. I'm going to, go, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to go his way. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, or to the uh, rulers that he's talking to here, you know, this is the way that you are. You're supposed to be committed to following God's standards, living for him. He's made you shepherds of his people. And you just want to be independent. You want to do things your own way. You owe him things you're not paying back. And as a result, you're constantly in conflict with him in the way you're trying to run the country. The tax gatherers, the prostitutes, the two groups of people in the country that you think are the worst, they heard what John was saying, they changed their mind, and they got themselves baptized. You, you've not moved a muscle. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you really want to claim that you are serving God, this is where you've got to be. It's better to be a repentant sinner who says, I was wrong, but now I'm going to put it right than somebody who keeps on pretending I'm okay when you're not okay. Talking about giving up fighting. <laughs> this is a final picture just to end with. This is an amazing picture when you look at it close up. It's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of American servicemen going home because the war is over. <laughs> they've been fighting, they've been serving, they've been working hard, but now they have no more need to fight. The war's been won. There's no question who's in authority any longer. And because they've served faithfully, because they've fought the good fight, they've done the battle, they can now go home and build their lives again. And one of these days, that's going to happen to us. If we simply carry on doing what God wants us to do. Sorry, I'll speak a bit louder then. I can hear you. Uh, if we... Uh, keep on doing what God calls us to do, living his ways, serving him, whatever happens, making sure the outside and the inside match one another, then one of these days he's going to say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Let's sing another final song then, shall we? And I'll stop talking. This one is going to be Thank You for the Cross. Let's just remind ourselves of how much we've got to be grateful for. Uh, 
and how much Jesus has done for us as we finish.